As a guy who has worked in apparel for roughly 20 years and certainly appreciates nice clothes and fine tailoring, there are several accounts I follow on Instagram posting men in suits, previous podcast guest Matt Horanic namely being one. Often I'd be scrolling my feed and photos of suits would stop me from going on, and a pattern began to form where I'd see the same name tagged in the photo, Jay Muser. The man behind that handle is this week's guest, Jake Muser, a custom tailor in New York City outfitting some of the sharpest guys in the game. I had never met Jake before, but his work utterly intrigued me on a couple different levels. Not as many people are wearing suits these days. I used to joke while living in Los Angeles that there's only two people wearing suits in LA, lawyers and agents. And then there's the retail aspect. Competition is stiff with the likes of big names such as Ralph Lauren, Brooks Brothers, and many others, frankly. But what I can tell you is Jake's work is different. It has its own style. We talk about skiing, punk rock, having realistic expectations, making for being a good customer, and how variety truly shapes life experience. What I really took away was when it comes to creating a bespoke suit, the art of collaboration really reigns supreme. And it's the relationship that is what connects the dots in the current digital age. I hope you enjoy all the details discussed because there sure are some gems in this one. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Jake, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) I really appreciate you taking the time. Um here in New York, uh, enjoying my trip. Um, but let's get into kind of what brought you to your point now. Where'd you, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um, I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, I mean, I, I would say up and on the East coast. I moved to New Hampshire when I was around 12. So kind of 12 to 18 formative years in New Hampshire and as a kid in Philadelphia. So up and down the East coast. And so what did your parents do in Philly and in New Hampshire? Um, my, my father's a professor and my mother's a linguist, so my father's doing research for Dartmouth kind of throughout at least the New Hampshire years. Sure, yeah. And do you, do you have siblings or yeah, only child? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I've got two, two younger siblings mm-hmm. that, um, and then uh, kind of an adopted brother as well. Oh, cool. Older. Who's yeah. kind of joined, joined the family later in life. Not, not technically adopted, but part of the family at this point. Gotcha. <laughs> understood so we grew up in a crazy household lots of kids lots of people it sounds fun yeah it was good <laughs> um schooling where did you did you go to university uh, i went to fit okay menswear so more kind of in the trade school route sure now what kind of drew you to fit were you into apparel or just yeah, design was, in general as a child or you know i was into um into design and living in New York and it felt like the most hands-on, you know, Parsons gives more um, design and I really wanted the tools that it took to make clothing and to, you know, and to really, to be hands-on and FIT I felt was the more kind of comprehensive. You actually learn how to make patterns, draft things, do stuff in that direction. So it was the, was the kind of best fit for me. The more technical side. Yeah. you know, I quickly, once I started the business, kind of realized that even though I had spent the last few years kind of honing the craft, I was never going to be as good as the guys I could hire. Not never, but not in any, not in the short term. So I started hiring guys that had been 
you know, selling for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. <laughs> Some of these guys were pushing retirement age and been tailing since they were bo- little boys. So Yeah. It cool. Hard. It's hard to compete with that level of skill. Sure. You want to talk about 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, probably 30,000 hours of experience. It's hard to, when you're 26 years old, to go, I'm not going to wait 20 years to, to it's start It's impossible. Right. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. What were some of the things you did as a kid, like activity-wise? You know, I've always, since I was a really, I mean, I've been skiing as long as I've been walking for the most part. Probably started skiing when I was about three. So that's always been something that I love doing. I love doing that. When I was when I was in Philadelphia, I would go skiing up in the East Coast with my grandparents. My father would go out west every year. Then when I moved to New Hampshire, I lived on the side of a ski mountain, so I skied. You know, I could practically ski home from where I was on a small mountain. So I, would, I was skiing a few nights a week there and also going out west, and I still try to make it out west every year. So that's been kind of an all-time favorite pastime. Um, and when I grew up, I liked to mountain bike, hike, you know. And then I was also, on the total flip side of that, I was really into, you know, especially kind of in high school, I was really into the, the music scene. So I was really into kind of rock and roll, punk rock, and going to shows and seeing bands and that kind of stuff, which... I don't do as much anymore. <laughs> Some friends are still playing. It's like, now I'm like, I'm too old for this. I'm just like, I'll go to my friend's shows and I'll sit in the back, like have a beer and kind of watch it from the distance, not get my eardrums blown out. Right. Did you play an instrument? You know, I dabble with different instruments. I've never had a real talent for, uh, for, play, for playing music. I've always enjoyed music, but I've never actually had the, the, the chops to really be good at it. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, I guess awareness is crucial. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> um, that's really cool. So, are you you're still skiing these days? You said, yeah. Try yeah, to make it. Where's Where's the uh, location that you like most? You know, I think I keep going back. I was at Alta this year, which is really one of my kind of all time favorites. Yeah. You know, the the, the snow, the the. Uh, I like that it's a smaller mountain that's not so built up either. Uh, you know, they're one of the few that old school and they, there's no, no there's no snowboarding allowed. No right yeah allowed. <laughs> uh, which you know if you're if you're into hunting for the powder that's always nice we always the theory is that the snowboarders chop the powder up so as a as a strictly skier area you're able to get more access to snow at least this is the you know <laughs> this is this is the rumor in my family at least that's uh that's fair that's very fair um so what kind of bands were you into I was into bands like the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits. Um, it's like all laundry list of bands, sure. Sex Pistols, The Clash, things like that. Any notable shows that resonate to this day that you're like, man, that was a sick show? That's a hard one, man. I've seen a lot of shows. <laughs> a lot of, you know, I think it's the kind of culmination of all of it that's a lot of fun. I saw the Misfits on their latest reunion this year, which was pretty funny i don't know if it was the best show in my life but it was right. definitely pretty amusing to see them kind of original lineup doing the first records so that was pretty like pretty interesting yeah i bet <laughs> so how soon out of college did you start the business i was working on this jay school. muser um well i was doyle muser in the beginning okay. i had a business partner and we had a kind of a our first shop shop called against nature which is a kind of a cooperative shop where we were collaborating with a denim maker named Simon Jacobs and a custom jeweler named Ryan Matthew. So we all kind of like worked together in this space and it was like kind of a collective. So we had half that was a storefront, half it was our workshops. We had, you know, Amber, my old business partner, myself, had a little tailoring studio. Ryan had his, you know, kind of 
work table set up where he was soldering and grinding and Simon was making jeans in the back. So it was kind of a... Oh, that's cool. It was a little chaotic. I think we quickly realized this was maybe not the... It was a cool idea and it was maybe better in practice than in, you know, than an actual, like, execution. It, um... Yeah, the kind of the theory was, was, was good, but it was hard. We started to kind of became a little bit, you know, I think it's hard when you're running different brands. You know, there's a lot of good synergy, but as, you know, and I was, as the suit side of it grew and as we became more classic in our tailoring, it kind of created like a rift towards the denim and the jewelry didn't make as much sense. Right. They became kind of more obsolete and it became really known as a suit shop. Just from an assortment shop. standpoint, yeah. yeah. And, you know, each of us were getting our clients, and then Ryan ended up getting a TV show and doing... He had always been a collector of kind of odd antiques, but then he was on a show called Oddities where he really strictly focused on, like, buying and selling of kind of obscure, uh, somewhat morbid antiques. So he went down that road, and then Simon just kind of split off and focused just on doing denim and tailoring. Got it. And, so we, so and we just hunkered right down into into just doing tailoring and that's when we opened up our uh, our second shop which was called Zoyal Muser which is now just Jane Muser. Now where was that original collective here on, in Manhattan? Uh, yeah, yeah, on Christie Street between Rivington and Delancey, okay. on the kind of Lower East Side. Sure. And then your first shop, Doyle Muser, was where? The, fir- the first Doyle Muser shop was where the Jay Muser store is at 19 Christopher Street. In the West Village. Oh, I see. So the same locale. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And we are sitting in your showroom. Yeah, which... Which is across the street. To be yet properly branded. We call it the showroom, the atelier. Got it. The apartment. Um, and this is, a, you know, our kind of duplex apartment that I took over. It had been a space that I had seen and admired in this neighborhood for a long time. And when it came up for rent, I just had to take it over and use it as a as a place to kind of do more private shopping experiences you know i think in this business a lot of it is about you know we is about experience we want people to have a place that's a little quieter where there aren't customers walking to the shop it's no distractions it's a place where you can sit down and you know we can give undivided attention and on the second floor we have kind of different um we've hosted different uh different brands right currently we have a shoemaker jay fitzpatrick who's um you know who has using this as his showroom as well so it's been a good uh it's been a good space for us sure i'm looking down at my notes and it's almost like you're answering the questions before i ask them so this is fantastic just thinking about the benefits of bespoke clothing just in general um can you touch on some of those that maybe compare with off the rack or somewhere that you would just buy at a normal big box store you know i think that there's a variety of um of reasons why getting custom or bespoke clothing is so appealing to people i think that the you know the first um i think that the first thing to think about i mean at the front of this is fit and that's obviously like the the kind of most important thing you're getting something that's you know that's that's made exactly for you and if you've got a perfect fit model body then maybe this isn't as relevant but if you don't you really you know you really benefit from having something that's been made from you know that's thought about your kind of physicality from from the beginning of it so that's that's a huge um advantage and that's whether it's being done made to measure which is when it's just kind of from a existing block and trying to 
find the perfect fit for you or it's done bespoke where it's actually you know hand drafted draped cut fit ripped down put back together and made as like a truly kind of handcrafted piece of clothing you know any of these you're really getting a more nuanced fit than you are if you just shop off the rack and then the second aspect to this is getting something that's that's exactly what you want from a design perspective you know it's picking that fabric it's picking that pocket it's picking those details because there's often I mean sometimes you walk into a store and you find that thing that's perfect but you often see something and you're like man this is great you know what I wish they had done I wish that there was like I wish this had a high single vent rather than two vents. I, I don't, I'm just, I wish this lapel was a quarter inch wider, whatever that, that is. That's the, that's another reason why you go there. And it's, there's something nice. I think when you're complimented on a bespoke suit, it's not just a compliment to the brand. It's kind of a compliment, you know, uh, to you and your taste. I think that it's, I, I try to personally approach bespoke as a really collaborative effort. You know, when we do custom clothing for people. It's, I have, my point of view, my aesthetic, and there are maybe things that I would maybe refuse someone to not let someone do, but really it's about trying to guide them and use my kind of expertise to help craft them that makes sense for who they are and not just pushing everyone into my vision. So it's, you know, it's trying to almost like a design a capsule collection for each person, you know, with my point of view and who they are and kind of melding those together. Well, you know, as, as far as you can do in that way. You know? yeah. And I think all of those things combined with that collaborative effort that you're talking about is it's just that level of service, that attention to detail and that sort of thing from a sales perspective. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a sale as a result, but you don't feel probably like you're being sold as much as you are creating together. And I think that's that relationship and that kind of process is yeah, really appealing. I mean, we try to keep it that way. I don't, you know, I've told guys many times, you know, listen, like, think about it, man. I'm not trying to force you into a sale. Like, go home. Think about what you want. Like, come back. Like, I'm not in it for the quick, you know, sale here. I want to, you know, work with you. And this is what you want to do. Let's let's come up with something. Let's let's keep this dialogue going. It's not about, you know, rush, you know, pushing you into buying the one thing I think you should buy so I can get you out of the shop. Like, I've told people all the time, this is no pressure, man. Like, go home. Think about it. You know, like, don't worry, take a clip of the fabric. Let's think about it. There's no no rush on my end, man. Like, this is, That's great. Know, I'm not going anywhere. The fabric's not, most of the time, not going anywhere. I'll tell people, I'm like, listen, this mill makes a finite amount. So you do have to think about this one. But generally speaking, take your time. Like, it's not about kind of the quick sale. And the same thing when, you know, when you're finishing it up. It's about, for me, I've had guys be like, no, the suit's perfect. I'm like, no, it's not. I have to, I have to fix that. And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, let me, let me do my thing. I've even had guys be like, no, it's perfect. I'm like, you know what? I don't think I did that right. Let me let me redo that, you know? You, you can hang on to that one, but I'm making another because I got to make this, pro you know, because, you know, I think for some people, you'll know exactly how to articulate what you love or don't love about something. But for a lot of people, it's like you don't know what it is that drew you to something and what it is that makes you not like something, But but it's those things in time that will... If a suit's really, if you've gone the extra mile to make sure a suit's perfect, that's the one that someone's going to be complimented the most on, that they're going to be gravitate to want to wear the most. Like that's, and that's what I want it to be. Like nobody, I never want to make that suit that someone gets that sits in the back of your closet. And I think we've all bought that weird thing that was an impulse buy or something. And you're like, I wonder why we bought that. It sits in the back of your closet for years. That's like never where I want to be. I want to be like the thing that gets beaten up and needs to be replaced eventually because it's been worn so many times. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, uh, 
I think a lot of people have made the mistake of going like off the deep end their first you know their first trip out for a bespoke suit and then you wear it once a year because it's so so much like peacocking in a way that like yeah. If, if you wear that suit every time you wear a suit, you're just that guy in that suit again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a challenge. I think, you know, the first time you get a custom suit, it's like, do you want to announce to the world that you got a custom suit? You're like, boom, I'm going to do a big, bold window pane. I'm going to do contrasting buttons and a crazy lining. And then from across the street, you're like, well, that guy's wearing a custom suit. And that's cool. Like, I love that. Like, I've, I have those kind of suits where, like, from across the street, you're like, there's no way that guy bought that suit off the rack. But what I like and the kind of stuff that I pick up on now, and obviously I'm geeky and I've been this a long time. I'll see a guy that's in a Navy suit and it's cut so well that I know that it's bespoke. Like I'll be like, there's no way that that's anything other than a bespoke suit. And it's Navy lining, Navy suit. It's just like, you know, that kind of, and you're like, that's, and that's the kind of, to me, that's why you're great. That's when it's a really well-made suit that you can just tell, you know, by those kind of things. What makes a client easier to deal with versus more difficult? And I don't mean that to sound as if it's negative. I mean, just what makes it an easy experience for you, the business owner or the, the tailor? You know, I think being realistic, I think that's, you know, we get people with kind of unrealistic um, ideas of what custom clothing are. When I say unrealistic, I mean... um you know, I'm short. I'm not a tall guy. So, and if I were to go to a custom judge, make me look tall. They'd be like, well, there's some things we can do to help out with that. But you're not going to look like you're 6'2". That's not going to happen. That's so um, funny. If yeah. someone's kind of overweight, there are ways to disguise that. And there are ways to dress that make that look more flattering. But there are limits to this. And that's kind of one of the issues that we see. You know, guys, they're trying to get something that just, at the end of the day, this is clothing. This is not right. plastic surgery. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. So I think that that's, I, those are the kind of things that I think about when I would th say, what are kind of difficult mints? You know, you would drop right, like that needs drop right shoulder. Like that's my job to address and address it perfectly. If you've got stoop posture or you stand very erect, like that's on me. Like those are tailoring things that need to be fixed and I'll do that. Like, and I'll make sure that those, those kind of posture things. And that's like, I'm, you know, to help out. And, you know, whether it's, if it's weight or height, and if it's these kind of things, you know, it's figuring out how to address that. It's it's knowing that, um, you know, it's bringing the rise up, or it's lengthening the front of the coat, or putting the fullness in the front of the jacket. You know, one of the things we do if someone's got a more portly build, you put the fullness, meaning the measurement from the front of the jacket to the middle, to the back of the jacket, could be the same on two different jackets. And I hope you're following me on this. But it's about balancing more of that towards the front. It's about pushing some fabric to the front because that's where the person's carrying their weight. And then adding curve to the sides. So you're having this great silhouette, but it's not pulling in the front. So it's those kind of things right. that are important. Now, is that considered more drape type of approach? Like it's you're, you're focusing more on drape? Chest. It's just, just shape. It's just full, like just so that, it's, that it's not tight in the front of the coat and that you have this great... So one of the things we try to do is add a lot of like... You know, we don't have to be like feminine in its hourglass quality but to have a nice kind of tapered waist on a jacket but also have it be comfortable in the front of the coat sure. well i i kind of glazed over this but what got you into bespoke tailoring to begin with as far as suiting and stuff goes like why not say custom jeans or, or another avenue um i think just really 
like enjoying, you know, I really liked custom. Well, I really liked tailoring and suiting. And, you know, at the time, especially when I first started and still to this day, a lot of my influences came from Savile Row and English tailoring. And um, at the time, which was like the mid 2000s and the, you know, tailoring was in the kind of a slump and it was very hard to find the kind of tailoring, you know, the kind of tailoring that I liked. And, you know, I was looking for these kind of silhouettes that just didn't exist. And so it started making more and more sense to go custom. And, um, and as I started exploring the ideas of custom suiting, it became apparent that everyone, including the more people that I talked to were like, Oh, custom, like that's the, that's incredible. I get to choose all these details. Everyone, you know, love that kind of that kind of concept and, and when it started it was me just making suits for friends and acquaintances and then acquaintances became you know further and further acquaintances become strangers became a real business um and so uh yeah but i guess it all just came to kind of bring that back it came from just a real appreciation for tailoring and i always you know in the beginning it was really a lot about like you know i was going back to my kind of history of loving musicians you know i was looking at the kind of stuff that you know, Keith Richards was wearing and Mick Jagger were the kind of like those Tommy Nutter suits that they were wearing in the 60s. And then, you know, I was also looking at the kind of stuff that Paul Weller and the Jam and these kind of guys were wearing and thinking like, man, these guys just look so cool. Like this is like the kind of, you know, ultimate look. So kind of going for that. For sure. Do you have a favorite suit, be it to wear or to work on or tailor? Not really, to be honest. I don't have a favorite. I really believe in seasonality. I, I really like embracing a different season. I, you know, uh, I have a t I have totally different wardrobes. Obviously, I'm in a position where I have a lot of clothing. I'm, you know, and I don't expect like, you know, basically any like normal person to have as, as many suits as I have. But, um, but I, I think that it's fun to embrace it. So it's, I don't really believe in the kind of the, the one perfect thing it's like the perfect thing is is only perfect for a certain occasion you know i have something that i love to wear like i love wearing flannels in the winter there's nothing like i that i love more than wearing a flannel suit when i'm walking around new york or in some you know northern city in the winter time and i've got this heavy flannel suit and a cashmere sweater and that and it's just like cool breeze and i'm just like oh this is perfect as much as i love you know if you're sitting out in the sun if you're in you know, when I, you know, in, in Italy or in France and I'm, you know, in the South of France and I'm in like a linen suit and I'm just like, this is like what it's all about. But it's not that I like linen suits more than flannel suits. I'm just like, it's different kind of experiences. And I love wearing, I like wearing linen suits in the city as well, but it's, yeah. but it's those kind of things. Um, this is something I've talked about with our kind of mutual friend, Matt Rannick. It's about, you know, who has WM Brown project. It's not about just this this four season this, you know, I like to eat, I, we eat different foods in the summer, we drink different drinks in the winter, you know, this is, you know, I think kind of the fun of being alive. It's not about finding that one thing that you eat every day for the rest of your life. It's about variety. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's the fun thing about apparel, you know, because you can make those changes yeah. and, or, or seek out those changes by way of taking that vacation to the South of France. That, <laughs> Maybe you don't have that weather year-round, obviously, but you can seek it out. And I think that's super fun. Um, and what makes this, I don't know, exciting, you know, to switch it up to. Um, most people would recommend a navy suit as your first bespoke piece. 
Uh, is there a time when you would ever not recommend that or not play that card? It just depends how many suits someone owns. You know, if someone comes to me and says, I don't have any suits. I'm starting like a new job. I'm, you know, fresh out of school. I'm fresh out of this. And I'm like, be working on a bank. It's like, all right, I think you should get a Navy suit, two pairs of pants. I think you should do something versatile that you can wear twice a week. Um, you know, fabric that's hard wearing, that's wrinkle resistant. You know, so that would be the, that would be the kind of direction I'd go. If someone's like, listen, I have more Navy suits than you can imagine. I've got every Navy, every gray, every solid. I want something interesting. Like I want something that's more youthful. It's, it's all, it depends on the, on the person and what they're looking for. Cause I have some guys that have buying custom clothing for longer than I've been alive, have more suits than I can imagine. And are like, I want something like, you know, find something interesting for me. I want something with character. I don't need to, I'm not looking for a workhorse. I'm looking for something unique. And then it's about trying to, you know, look through the books and whether it's a, a blend of something for the season, what, you know, meaning when I say a blend for the season, it could be a wool, cotton, linen, or a wool, silk, linen blend for the summer, or a wool, cashmere, silk, or something for the winter. You know, it's these kind of different things that you look for that are maybe a bit more unique than your classic worsted wool. This week's episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry, located in Solana Beach, California. Owners Tim and Jana Jackson provide you with some of the finest independent watches while also carrying a wide array of fine jewelry. Tim is GIA certified, and they have a goldsmith on staff for all of your custom needs, resulting in a warm, welcoming customer service experience with a level of knowledge that's really second to none. Pay them a visit the next time you find yourself in Southern California, or visit them online at passionfinejewelry.com. Tim also has a blog, independentintime.com, that allows for a deep dive into all things horology, so check that out as well. It's truly been a blast launching this podcast, and as season one winds down, I'd like to share that the best way to support this podcast is to visit standard-h.com and pick up some of our merchandise. And if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, feel free to drop me a line at standardhpodcast at gmail.com. Now back to my conversation with Jake. What would be the way you would sort of describe your silhouette as far as like what you guys do? Um, so, you know, I describe it as a mix between English and Italian tailoring. You know, the, the shoulders and the gorge line are very Italian, um, of the jacket. The waist and armhole kind of follow more of those Savile Row styles with the high waist suppression, very high armhole, a little bit of fullness to the back of the sleeve, which is more of a Savile Row kind of style in my mind. Trousers, I think of as more English, very kind of flat front you know, kind of tapered cut with a slightly higher rise, often with a, with or without a cuff, depending. <laughs> as, as On needed. the person, sure, yeah. yeah. So as far as the Italian shoulder, for those who don't know, for example, it's a little softer than, say, the English roped Yeah, so variety. it's, you know, it's, well, it's, it's two things. We've pulled the, the shoulder pad out, so there's almost no padding. Depending on the individual and depending on what makes sense, there might be a, very small padding or an extra piece of canvas that helps kind of stabilize the shoulder. Um, otherwise, it could be absolutely nothing. So just a single piece of canvas that is in the jacket, running over the shoulder, very kind of clean with a, we call this ball camicha, which is the shirt sleeve setting, which set into the jacket the way you might, the way you set a shirt, the way you set a sleeve into a shirt rather than the kind of more traditional English style that's 
you know, that's set in and then adding rope and structure to the kind of, and definition to the edge of the shoulder line. Now, would you ever do that for someone? Yeah, we, 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 um, and we've gone back and forth. That's not, you know, I'm not kind of end all be all with this stuff. I love a good rope shoulder. Um, we have certainly the, um, I, I would say most of what we do is that softer style. Um, but, but we love to do rope shoulders and we've got a few different styles that we like to do. Sure. Um, generally kind of a small tight rope, not as puffy, but very kind of clean, narrow and that kind of sharply sharp is how I like to do a rope. Nice. What are some of the more unique requests that you've gotten over the years? You know, we've worked with a few, um, kind of magicians or illusionists. Oh, wow. Um, so we've done pockets that connect to other pockets that connect oh, no to way. other pockets. We've done kind of secret compartments, things like that. So that's certainly like, you know, pretty interesting. It doesn't get more interesting than working with someone who's doing special kind of pickpocket, sleight of hand tricks and trying to come up with ways that they can toss things into a coat by just flicking it open and having large pockets that can then be accessed. So kind of opening a coat, you know, pulling a coat open, being able to throw something in an inside pocket that you can then reach around and grab from one of your outside pockets. So stuff like that's pretty interesting. Um, that's so cool. Uh, so those kind of details are fun. So you probably can't name names as to who. I can't so, name yeah, names. I was going to say. Yeah, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't even go on that. We, <laughs> we did do compartments one for birds for a guy in the sleeves of his coat because he would kind of shoot the birds out of his sleeve. So we had to build these little kind of compartments in the cuffs where he could hide like a little, little dove. That's amazing. Which is pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I never saw that coming, <laughs> actually. Yeah. But then it was also funny. We had done a decorative cuff like what we call a turnback cuff or a swordsman's cuff on his on this guy's suit. And he said that when he was doing tricks, everyone kept saying, oh, you're hiding it in the cuff. And it was funny because the cuff was just purely decorative. So we ended up actually taking the cuff off because everybody was thinking that this was right. where he was hiding things. He was like, that's, he was like, he's like, that's not where I'm hiding things. This is, this is just meant to look cool. But we, we took it off because it was people felt like they were busting him by saying that it was in the cuff. But oh, wow. That's funny. Well, you just did a, a suit, or, or speaking of Matt Hranick, the uh, the Negroni tweed. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, where did that? I mean, obviously, the Negroni tweed name came from Matt's affinity of the Negroni you know, so this is really, drink. I should say, you know, I'm the Negroni tweed is really all Matt's project and Matt's kind of baby. I have, you know, been like lucky, and I'm enjoying the kind of collaborative process of making the actual um, of doing the cutting and the sewing. Um, and we've kind of cut it along with most of what my house style is. So it's you know, soft shoulder. But Matt collaborated with um, with Fox Flannel and our Fox Brothers fabric to kind of design a tweed that was inspired by the kind of colors and tones of the Negroni, which is his kind of favorite drink and become almost like his signature. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of – so he spent a lot of time developing the fabric. So that's not as much I mean that I've been as instrumental. And I've, I've chatted with him. We've talked about it. We bounced ideas, but that's really been kind of his thing. But when he finally got the sample and brought it to me, it was like, all right, let's make a jacket. So it'll uh, it'll be fun to debut that at uh, Pitiwomo. So that is a single-breasted jacket? Single-breasted jacket. Okay. Patch pockets a, or? Uh, patch pockets. Cool. And this is a fabric that will be available. You know, he'll be selling this fabric. So in Fox Brothers, he'll be selling it. So this will be, you know, I'll be doing a capsule line. It'll be available through me, but he's going to be 
the cloth will be available through different custom tailors and then direct to the public if you want to buy it and take it to a tailor of your choice. So that'll be, oh, wow. I think, um, I think coming this fall, but that would be a question for Matt. <laughs> sure. Don't quote me on any kind of timeline for it. But. Yeah, no problem. Uh, the, uh, what, yeah, I was about to say, cause tweed is sort of synonymous with fall winter yeah. type of collection. So it'll be more of that warmer suit. Exactly. Um, or for colder weather, however you want to phrase it. Um, what role does travel play for you? Um, are you sourcing things in Italy for fabrics or are you just going to fabric shows or like, do you travel so for work much? Fabrics in Italy. We switch fabrics in England and we do a lot of manufacturing in Italy. So I'm, I'm in Italy a lot. I love, I love Italy. Yeah. You know, kind of to go back with what you're saying, you know, I, travel's important. I find a lot of inspiration in travel. I also, and it's not just to going somewhere, um, I find inspiration in, in travel, but I also find it inspiring to see where things are made and how they're made. So whether that's visiting a workshop here in the city, meeting a tailor, or traveling to Italy to see where the yarns are dyed and prepped and how the mills are spinning this stuff, whether it's going to Harris or Lewis or Huddersfield. Like, I like to see where stuff is made and how it's made and meet the people who make it. And that's just kind of, you know important and, and fun and it's the same thing goes for visiting the workshops that we make you know our ties or our suits or our shirts or different things that we've made in Italy um, whether it's accessories you know anything so I, th- I think you just think that that's kind of an important kind of human part of of uh, of clothing so that's something that I enjoy a lot so you know I'm lucky and I obviously I like producing in Italy because part of the fun is getting to go to Italy so often and see people and i think that there's a lot of passion for clothing and and um and tailoring and there's just a great kind of level of craftsmanship there yeah i think it can be a super transformative experience and just how you even experience your own clothes having been to the manufacturer and meeting the people and the hands that are touching the fabric yeah, and you stuff. get a very different appreciation i think especially when you visit a mill you look at fabric differently afterwards it's hard to be like you're like, yeah, it was really cool. I saw this being woven. I mean, I did a trip to Harris uh, two years ago, you know, to go meet with different Harris Harris Tweed, like, mills and weavers. And, like, after that, it's like there's no way you can look at Harris Tweed the same way. You're like, God, I loved this cloth before. I love it even more now. Yeah, sure. Now, what role does pricing play in kind of your business? Um, like, how do you determine that? Um for those that don't know, you know, when you're having a suit made and you're buying fabric and things like that, obviously man hours so are accounted for. Really just according to the cost of the fabric, you know, so if it's our suits for our kind of custom level start at 2450 and that's for baseline price. And if the fabric goes up, then it could be 2550 or 26, 27. Um, so we're pretty we don't have any upcharges for design so meaning we're not there's no this thing for this pocket or this style there's no none of that the tailoring is all kind of at a fixed kind of price if someone wanted something crazy i don't know i guess we would address it but probably i would just do it and i wouldn't overthink it you know the same meaning like i don't know what what is crazy could be some like you know sir the only thing that we would maybe charge more for would be if we get into kind of embroidery so if people want something really elaborately embroidered for like a dinner jacket, that can be really, really expensive. And, you know, and depending on how it's being done, there are different like methods. There are ways it can be done by machine. There's ways 
well, we could send it to England where you have these like regimental embroiderers, but you could spend $10,000 just on embroidering a jacket before you even put, before I even really put the thing together. So right, sure, yeah. obviously that's kind of to the person who's interested in, in kind of in going there. Yeah. Well, what kind of landed you on Christopher Street? Like, how did you pick this location necessarily? Was it just timing or did you just like the neighborhood? I just or? like the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, nothing, uh, for better or worse, very little of my kind of business has been run with like a lot of, um, I don't want to say a lot of planning, but it's been about like, I'm not like a, a business school kind of guy. I'm a kind of more like kind of do things based on my intuition and my interest in things. And so um, I love the West Village. I think it, I thought it was interesting. There was no other suit shops like this. It's and it's an affluent neighborhood, so it made sense. But I had really, I just think that the kind of architecture of this area is really nice, and so it kind of felt like it made sense. I was also living here, so it was I was walking past different storefronts, and I started thinking, man, I should really open a store here. Yeah. You know, I walk. I was at the shop in Lower East Side. I was walking back and forth every day, and I came across a little shop on you know here in Christopher on a nice block that's. Um, that made sense. And at the time, almost every other, every, you know, this small block, but almost every single business on the block was, um, was independent and owner run, meaning the owner's there on a regular basis. And it's still that way after eight years, you know, most of the businesses here are, you walk in and the owner's sitting there and that's a, you know, increasingly hard to find anywhere in New York. Sure. Yeah. You know, I was just about to say the retail landscape just seems to be, always changing here yeah in the I mean, that's city, how blue sure. street was 10 15 years ago and now it's nothing but global chains probably like you do like global like lost leader chains but you know but but it's nice and that's that's what i really enjoy about about this block so why i've kind of continued to you know to not want to move and to want to stay here and sure. you know initially when we were taking over this the atelier space it was like all right we're growing out of our small shop should we get a a bigger store and then nothing kind of the right thing didn't come up. So I was like, you know, maybe we'll just um, kind of expand, double down on Christopher street. We'll have the small shop and dedicate it more to ready to wear. And we'll open up this new atelier, which is all for custom, which, you know, so. Yeah. That's so, amazing. Yeah. It's been, it's been nice. Yeah. And I mean, you've done great jobs with both spaces. I, I really enjoy the store across the street. It's really intimate. Thank you. Um, I think it's fantastic. Obviously, I'll post some photos and stuff on social when we launch the the episode so people can see. But um, what is kind of your overall impression of retail these days? Um, you're in a very special position given that you're bespoke. Um, how do you see the industry changing and will it change for you? Hmm. So I think that obviously the industry is changing a lot. I think that goes... Uh, you could probably ask somebody that question at any juncture in time when they tell you that the industry is changing because the industry is life. Oh, things are always changing. So I, I think that, you know, with, with e-commerce growing so much and with the department stores suffering, I think that there, I think that the key to a lot of this is about um, kind of creating something that you re can't recreate online. If you only sell ready to wear and you only sell, same set of large brands then there's really not a huge difference other than the tactile difference of shopping on mr porter 
than there is in shopping at Bergdorf, you know, or Bergdorf online. It's it's all, you know, you can get it. It's free shipping, free return. You buy what you want, return it. And that's great. But I think that, you know, if you, and there are custom clothiers online. There are, you know, plenty of them. But if you really want someone that's going to sit down and spend a lot of time and energy, you know, measuring you and thinking about your pattern, that's something that kind of has to be done in person. And then if you want to look at fabrics and feel them, and if you want someone who, looks at fabrics and feels them all day long to weigh in and give you advice on how they wear and what it's like, then you kind of you kind of need to come into a shop like mine. I'm not saying I'm the only one in the world, but that's something that you you know that's I think can, you know that you you know that can cost a little extra and that's but that's something that you I don't I don't think they were unreasonably priced, but it's that kind of thing. It's you know, you're having someone who's an expert helping to guide you and that's mom's worth it i think we you know i personally see it um i like i like wine and it's nice when you have a good sommelier who understands you and can help figure out what is it you're looking for they have spent a lot more time and energy at least than myself like understanding this stuff and they can walk you through the menu and find the right thing and the same thing goes or you know if you go to the right wine shop where someone can really you know you talk about what your budget is what you're looking for and they can find you great things that are just spectacular and kind of walk you through that um that's really nice and it's not as easy when you're just kind of going online and buying stuff and then you're doing you can go out and do your own research and find it and read the tasting notes but if you've got someone that you whose opinion respect and you're talking with them you can you know find something interesting that way so that's my kind of thought um back to retail i think that that's important i think that you know having someone understands you and have you know, has, has worked with you for a number of years is, is hard to replace online. It's hard to kind of, you know, to just to duplicate that. So I think that as retail changes, I think that it's about kind of, um, it's about those kinds of things, at least in physical retail. What, what, what makes physical retail um, important as, as e-com and everything grows so much is that kind of experience and that kind of collaborative process and having someone who's really helping to find the right thing that that works for you and not trying to make a quick sale. Like same thing. If someone comes in and tries on a suit and it doesn't fit them, I'm like, I don't know. You should come, come back next season. Like I'm telling you, we'll have more stuff that's going to fit you better. Like we're out of your size. There's no point in trying to do something that's not going to work, you know? And that's, and that's important. I think is like not trying to, not that person who's worked there. Who's going to, who in six months, they might not even work there. When you bring your suit back in, you're like, why did I buy this suit? You know, I'm not going anywhere. So that's, you know, anyway (laughs) no that's awesome because yeah Yeah. i mean i was even going to touch on those like online dealers that are bespoke right shirt makers online but it's like they make you measure yourself and there's no relationship uh, you know there's ones where you can chat with people and there are prices that are you know really good and maybe for a shirt maker i can see that you need your basic shirts you can probably pick those out online pretty easily if you really you know if you're looking for your workhorse shirts and you're blasting through them makes sense. But I think when it comes to real fine tailoring, it's really hard to, to recreate that without a kind of human interaction. That's fair. Um, Do you believe in any sort of intersection that exists between luxury and affordability? Because a lot of the times many would say they're mutually exclusive. You know, I'm pretty skewed because not skewed. I'm in the real, it, to, to a certain extent. I think that there are a lot of ways that you can, that those can intersect. I think mean, there are brands that have great value, but this stuff is all 
kind of subjective. I can say, man, you look at that, it's like an incredible brand with a great value that sells a shirt that's $200. Someone must be like, $200 is insane. Like, how could you even, that's not a cheap shirt. That's an expensive shirt. $200 is a, is a but when I would, you know, I would then say, listen, you know, that shirt is comparable with a $800 shirt from Kitan. You know, that's a, and that's what I say, you know, that's really like, well, there are brands and so those, I, I don't think that there's a real, from the real like fast fashion kind of end to the top end, I don't think that there's a way to kind of to mix those entirely. But I think there's really good sweet spots that are in the middle there that are still kind of probably more what would be considered luxury price point, but not um, prohibitively expensive. And I think that there's a lot of kind of lot of room there and I think if you're smart and you're really focused on finding those kind of brands I think there are like good I don't know good there's a lot of good options I should say sure. so moving away from more just like the standard business type questions like what's a typical day like for you like what is is there a typical day short answer is it never feels that like there's a typical day right kind of yeah. business. but what is a day for me I mean I'm I'm in here um you know, most of the time I'm in either my shop, the showroom, or the studio, um, which is like a small tailoring studio, and I'm kind of doing a cycle of running between all three of these places, and, uh, you know, I spend, you know, I see clients every day, I do fittings, I help, you know, meet with old clients and pick out fabrics, I help meet with new clients and measure them and talk about you know, fit and style. I work with some of the other kind of, I have sales staff here, so it's working with those guys, overseeing what they're doing. And then also, you know, you know, kind of working on fabrics that I'm looking at for the next, you know, collection and working, you know, at kind of, you know, meeting with new, new mills or new makers and trying to do that or trying to set up Skype calls or conversations with existing people that we work with to try to talk about how to like, fix you know it's always for me it's about evolving it's trying to okay how can we improve you know i saw something really interesting at this tailor like how do we you know can we change the way we construct the cuff here i'd like to can we make this kind of you know it's you know it's all of those kind of things it's let's rethink the way we're making our buttons or let's think about the kind of thread we're using on the buttonhole so these kind of little minutia things and you know, going through that stuff. So there's a part of it that's design. There's a part of it that's problem solving. This is my day to day. Every day is a little bit of design, a little bit of problem solving, a little bit of sales, working with people, um, and then a lot of just oversight. You know, kind of looking, kind of <laughs> trying to make it all run smoothly. Yeah, that was my next question. Really, is just how do you find the balance between you know ownership, management. And self-fulfillment even. So, you know, I think that the biggest thing and something that I still struggle with is trying to, you know, let people own things, not micromanaging. There's a tendency to want, when you run a small business, jump in every little thing and get, get in there and try to do it and do it differently. And I think it's important sometimes to let people, you know, really important with the kind of, with my team to let them do things their way and, you know, step in if I think that there's a real problem, but not you know, not overthink it. Sure. Um, 
what are you listening to these days as far as music? And are you playing it in the shop, or do you guys kind of... The shop, it's a total mix. We listen to a lot of, you know, it changes. Could be soul, could be 60s psych, could be old rock and roll, could be French pop, new wave kind of stuff. So it's pretty, it's pretty eclectic here. Uh, you know, I listen to music for the most part all day at the shops. When I go home... You kind of wind down? I kind of wind down. I don't listen to a ton of... I listen to a fair bit of music at home, but it tends to be like... You know, I only have a turntable at home. I don't have any, I don't stream anything. So I have vinyl and I have like a stack of records that are kind of my go-tos. Right now, I feel like it's like Leonard, Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits' Closing Time. Uh, like, I've got a couple couple Donovan records out there. There's a few of the, you know, it's kind of a few things that go into, go into this, you know, cycle in there. So The, the rotation? Yeah. Nick Cave, that's another. Okay. Oh yeah, a few. sure. I have a lot of Nick Cave records, but there's, we've got Henry's Dream has been on the kind of on the shelf in the rotation recently. Cool. So, what do you like to do in your free time? These, I mean, obviously we talked about skiing, but like on a no, weekend, I don't get to like do that every weekend. Right, um, exactly. So, like during the summers and stuff, what are you into? Summers, I like to go away a lot. We try try to, you know, we'll go to Long Island or go upstate. Um, this summer is kind of I have it. I have a seven month a seven month old, so I'm kind of congratulations new new baby. So it's a lot of just playing with her and taking her out or going to the park or doing kind of trying to be outside. Oh, that's awesome! Very cool. Yeah, it's got to be. Uh, are you sleeping? Okay, everybody, yeah, everybody's sleeping. Yeah, she's sleeping. Everyone's sleeping. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, talked to me a few months ago. It might not have been the same, but right. now we're all sleeping. Yeah, I hear the first month is a killer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, um, are you big into watches? I see you've... Uh, I enjoy watches. You know, I think... You've got a vintage sub on, it looks like. Vintage sub. Which What's I, the story behind this watch? Um, you know, I just... I, I've had this for a couple of years now. I just have been... Or maybe a year, I forget. year and a half, something. I don't know. I love the sub. Wanted one. Um, I have a few other watches that all have... I have a... I have a Rolex. I have a Datejust and a Daydate presidential so when i wanted to get a sub i was like i really want to get a watch that does not um have a date on it because i like to switch my watches and i hate set i'm always trying to do the set setting everything so i went for a 5513 because i wanted something that was just like (laughs) that i didn't have to do that with um and yeah and i enjoy i mean i've i really um you know i love watches i'm not the most knowledgeable guy when it comes to watches um I I like vintage watches. I like things that are older that kind of feel like they have a story to it. Um, I like things that have a little patina, a little kind of show a little age on it, which is why I actually just recently switched this, switched this sub over to a leather band. I have the original, the metal, but I wanted to kind of... Yeah, the strap For the summer, great. I thought it'd be nice to just keep it on a leather strap. It's a little lighter. Um, and I thought that this kind of putting on a brown leather helps bring out the kind of patina this one's not really not really tropical but it brings out a little bit of that earthiness in the dial and in the and in the um yeah like on the face yeah no it's really great where did, where did you get that piece i got this just from an uh online uh, rolex dealer oh nice cool um are you into cars at all you know not not as much you know i love cars living in the city i've been living in new york for yeah. a long time now yeah. uh we have a mini cooper, mini cooper but I, yeah i'm not just not which we don't even really kind of got rid of but uh i'm not 
you know, if I bought a country house, I suppose I would get into having cars. You know, I think, but right now it's like when I go out of town for the weekend, I get a zip car. It's a point A to point B machine. Sure. You know, I enjoy driving a nice car when I can, but it's just, it's, um, it feels kind of too much to keep a nice car in the city. Oh yeah. It's a different animal. It's a complete beast to have a kit, uh, uh, a car here. I would imagine. But I'm sure if I lived, if I lived in the West coast, if I lived somewhere where I drove every day, I could like anything, I would start getting into it and going crazy. And you know, was there anything of note? What would you get? You think, did you lo- love a car as a kid or anything? Do you have a poster on your wall or no, I never was, you know, what would I get now? So I would probably get if I, I would love to get a vintage. I would get a vintage sports car. My grandfather had a spider when I was growing up that I thought was so cool. I would get something like that or an Austin Healey or something kind of, you know, nothing like I would small compact convertible. Yeah, not and nothing super collectible. I wouldn't get into like a Jaguar or something. You know, I, I mean, I, I maybe I would, but I, you know, but I would go into something that just that looks cool, that's fun to drive, that you know, that would be good to have, and I think. I was driving on a regular basis. I got to say, I liked the Teslas. I would, I could get into that. I think that would be a fun. I mean, I just think that that's a nice car to drive. A lot of get up and go too. Yeah, it's just one gear, go. Exactly. <laughs> that's cool. Um, just to kind of circle back to the business real fast, though, I always ask people what what's been sort of the hardest part in in J Muser. Like, what what do you find to be difficult, or what was hard that may not be now, or what are some of the hard parts? You know, every day is kind of has its own challenges. I think that this is just a it's a challenging business. I think staying staying relevant um, and growing in any business is hard. Um, you know, we're not fighting for some big chunk of the market share. We're just a s- small shop trying to keep a small loyal client base and trying to grow a little bit every year and keep the people we have happy. So it's, you know, I think it's kind of slow and steady about winning the race, but slow and steady works. <laughs> sure. So, you know, that's, you know, and that's been great. You know, challenges, I don't know. There's no, no specific challenge to this business. You know, there are like a thousand, there are an infinite amount of challenges and difficulties that you deal with on a daily basis or yearly basis, but it's, but it's not as much driven by those kind of things. What's been easy for you? You know, I think that my timing has been lucky. I think that I got into this in a time when this type of clothing was getting popular and that, you know, I don't, I certainly didn't realize it, but when I look back on it, I think that this was kind of the perfect time to have gotten into this kind of clothing. And I think that shifting trends and these things have been, has been with me, which has been nice, which has not really been of design, but has been, but I feel like I have benefited from that. That's great. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add kind of wrapping things up here? Promote? Promote? No. I mean, I just enjoy having these kind of conversations. Yeah. I think same. You know, I think that, you know, most, you know, I think just like any of these things, you know, being thoughtful and thinking about, you know, what you buy and why you buy it is important. You know, I'm not a big, like, believer in having you know in more 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 like i I really like having stuff that's dependable sure well i'm actually heading to italy in september nice anywhere you would recommend that i must go where are you going to be i mean it's a Uh, small country but it's tuscany florence we're actually going to go south down to positano 
I'll give you a list of uh, of restaurants in uh, in Florence. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's Deal. some great restaurants in Florence. I mean, Positano's amazing. I think you should stop in Naples for a day. If you make your way, if you're going to be in Capri, or if you're thinking about Capri, you should go to Ischia instead. That would be my <laughs> Ischia is another little island, kind of right off the. I was just having this conversation two days ago, and I was asking about that. And I saw that uh, recently uh, Ted Gashu was was up in Ischia. Nice. Yeah, Ischia is incredible. It's really, I think that it's a really a fun island. It feels more authentic. It's, and there's some incredible properties there. There's just, just some basic little kind of on the beach little like, you know, like bed and breakfast you can stay in it has a lot of interesting because it's all volcanic you've got natural hot springs and all kinds of really just unique things there wow. okay. uh, i mean i can't i can't speak highly but i mean it's just beautiful there's a new kind of or there's an old property it's been redone called the mezzatore which i would certainly recommend checking out but sure. you know but just but even if it's like a day trip there's something about it there are natural spring there are natural hot springs that come up in the ocean so there are pockets where you can be in these like hot springs in the bay which are incredible um there's just there's a lot of cool stuff sold <laughs> it's like yeah man i'm sold i can't recommend that more. <laughs> that's awesome and florence is a beautiful city i mean florence i it's funny you know because i go to pt twice a year and i've been doing that for a number of years i've been to florence like more than any other i think i mean i probably spent more time in paris i guess but almost more than any other for such a small kind of Italian city, I've spent a lot of time there. So it's fun to get to know it. I describe it as, you know, I I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for two years. And if you don't know what that is, it's this kind of very built up hipstery neighborhood. And, you know, in two years, I never had a coffee shop, a deli, anywhere that any spot where they knew my name and knew what I liked. Never in two years. I have little cafes in Florence that when I go into, they know, like, they're like, you know, I, I don't eat red meat. So I, I walk in, ah, vegetariano, and they just start bringing out vegetarian tapas. And I'm like, wow, this is this is something that I've got, you know. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, that I have these kind of connections where I'm recognized more at different cafes in Florence than I am. Um, I, I moved out of Williamsburg. But anyway, it's just it's funny how that how that kind of happens. But I, I think it's just a great city. So Wow. Well, Jake, I really appreciate this, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. All right. We'll see you later. Sounds good. Bye. I'd like to thank Jake again for walking us through the ins and outs of the bespoke process, as well as sharing his truly unique perspective on the industry at large. I think it's fair to say that if you have the means, I'd highly recommend paying Jake a visit there in Greenwich Village. As always, thanks to Clear Audio for these noise-canceling headphones and music provided by Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. Thank you all for listening, and I'll catch you next week.